our scripture reading this morning, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? And here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let me pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we've been following these parables in Luke chapter 15, we've seen a number of common themes like lost and found, like repentance and the compassion of God. But it's abundantly clear that this chapter flows towards our parable for this morning the parable of the prodigal son. We started with 100 sheep, we condensed it down to 10 coins, and now we are all the way down to one prodigal son. It's the climax of the chapter, Luke 15. And as I made the case several weeks ago, this chapter of Luke 15 is the center of Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem that we celebrate in Lent. And it's the chapter that encapsulates all the key elements of Jesus' gospel in the way that he understood it and taught it. And preached it. So what I'm saying is that this parable is really important. And the reason that this parable of the prodigal son is is preached on so frequently and written about so much and represented in art so frequently is precisely because it is seminally important to Jesus' teaching and our understanding of the character of God. Now, I'll admit to you this morning that I'm grieved to have to share this word on this text with you in this particular format. I started preparing for this sermon series back in January, 
And I anticipated the next two Sundays so eagerly, working through the parable of the prodigal son, wondering how many times in my career as a pastor that I would be afforded this kind of space to unpack this treasure trove of spiritual wisdom. I didn't envision doing this in front of a camera, and that breaks my heart. But, but, I also did not expect never could have possibly expected that this text would speak so richly to where we are right now. Not just as a congregation, but as a global community. You do realize that this is a global moment that we are in, people, like we've never seen before, and we're hoping that we never have to see quite this way again. And it's on this Sunday when we feel the realities of COVID-19 so acutely that we read about the younger son, And this text offers us a meaning that we would never have had without the difficult world that we find ourselves in this morning. So this is not ideal, but I truly am convinced that it is extremely timely, like so timely that it must be the spirit at work in our midst for which I am truly grateful. Now, many of us are quite familiar with this parable A son takes an early inheritance. He spends all that money on wild living. We imagine drunkenness and parties and promiscuity and foolish behavior. The text doesn't actually spell those things out, but I think that it's fair to assume that. He ends up as a farmhand feeding pigs and he realizes that the pigs are eating better than he is. And he comes to his senses and he decides to return to his father and he asks if he would take him on as a hired hand. He rehearses his speech as he's returning home and the father has been watching for him the whole time. He runs out, he greets him, he embraces him, he takes him in and he throws a party for him. It's such a familiar story that we might well miss the shocking aspects of this story. So I'm going to run through five shocking things in this story to help us understand this parable a little bit better. The first is that the request of the son is totally shocking. Give me my share of the inheritance. Uh, There's a ton of stuff in this short little request. The Pharisees, the original audience of this parable, would have been completely appalled by this request. The younger son was indeed entitled to part of his father's inheritance. In the first century, the oldest son received a double portion of whatever the other children received. So, in this case, since there were only two sons, the elder brother was owed two-thirds of the estate and the younger brother one-third of the estate. But what's shocking here is that the inheritance was only supposed to be realized when the father died. So here his son stands before him in front of his very much alive father and asks for his portion, which is an act of extreme disrespect. Essentially, the son is telling his father that he is dead to him. That's shocking. The second shocking thing is that the father responds the way that he does. Uh, in, In this intensely patriarchal society, we would expect a really different response from the father. Uh, In an effort to to assert his position as the man of the house, we would expect this father to drive his son out of the family with a show of physical force in front of everybody in the town to make an example of him for others to see. But the father in this parable doesn't do that. He simply divides his property. Be mindful of this fact. 
The father did not have liquid assets on hand. He didn't just open a checkbook. It didn't work that way. His wealth was in his land. So he would have had to literally go and sell off a third of his land for his son to have money to go away with. This father acts in a way that no first century listener would have ever expected or seen before. This father endures the painful and embarrassing loss of wealth and honor, as well as the rejection of his son, bearing the agony and still showing affection to him. The third shocking thing is the son's plan for return. In that pigsty, all of his money gone, this young man resolves to go back to his father and asks if he might take him on as one of his hired hands. It's shocking, first of all, that the son would even consider returning to the father, whom he had so thoroughly rejected and disowned in his own right. He was surely counted as dead by this father and the whole community around him. His plan to come back as a hired hand meant that he would live not in his father's house, but in the village. And he would come in to work and earn an honest wage. And he would use this wage to begin paying off his debt as restitution for all that he had done wrong. He's not even asking to come back into the house. He's hoping that he can just pay back some of this debt. The fourth and the beautiful, shocking thing is that the father runs. In Jesus' time, the Jewish community had a well-known ritual. People knew about it. A ritual where they would punish sons who lost the family inheritance, especially those who squandered it in disgraceful ways. Angry villagers would would gather in support of the father and conduct what was known as a ketsatsa ceremony. They would fill a large pot with, with burned nuts and burned corn and they would smash it in front of the guilty party. And as the, as the earthenware pot would shatter, the villagers would chant, you are cut off from your people and you are disowned. And that was the cue for the sinful son to leave the town for good and never come back. But the father, portrayed in this story, doesn't follow that ceremony script, does he? Instead of sitting home and waiting for his wayward son to come crawling back so they can begin this ceremony as any dignified Middle Eastern father would have done, the father in Jesus' parable keeps a lookout for his son. And as soon as he spots him, as the text says, while he was still a long way off, he runs out and throws his arm around his wayward son and he showers him with kisses. Now, it's safe to assume, think about it this way, that by acting so quickly, by running, and by doing so with so much tenderness, the father is effectively preventing his neighbors from starting a ketsatsa ceremony to cut off his son from the family and from the community. I want you to sit with this image of the father running towards the son for a moment. Theologian Kenneth Bailey spent most of his career in the Middle East, explains how astonishing this sight would have been. He says it this way. Traditional Middle Easterners wearing long robes do not run in public. They never have. To do so would be deeply humiliating. The father runs knowing that in doing so, he will deflect the attention of the community away from his ragged son to himself. The people will focus on the extraordinary sight of a distinguished, self-respecting landowner humiliating himself in public by running down the road, revealing his legs. This is a shocking response from the father. The fifth and final shocking thing that I'll point out 
is the party that follows. The father says to bring out the best robe to prepare a feast. This is no small thing. The best robe would have been the father's own robe. It's his way of saying, there is no debt for you to pay back. I'm going to restore you to this family right here and right now. I'm going to cover your sin and your shame with my clothing and I'm going to restore you. The fatted calf, that's a big deal too. Meat was an expensive delicacy back then and it was only reserved for the most special of occasions. And the whole community would have been invited to this feast, meaning that those people who had just been busy burning nuts and corn so that they can put them in pots and smash them at the feet of this son are now eating the fatted calf in his honor and celebrating his restoration. What a shocking turn of events. When we put it all together, this is a story of radical grace that gives us a view of the character of God in one of its purest forms in all of scripture. We get a picture of the compassionate God that we've talked about for weeks now. The God who runs to greet his child. And before that child can even begin the rehearsed lines that they've been working on, the robe of acceptance and restoration is placed on them and the meat is already roasting. There's so much to focus on here. But I want to focus on an element of Jesus' gospel good news that we haven't talked about yet in this series. One of the key teachings of Jesus is on the kingdom of God. And that's where I think this This message really hits us in a timely way today. The story of the prodigal son gives us a glimpse into the nature of the kingdom of God, and that is so very important. Here's my definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is every person and place where Jesus is recognized as king. It's not defined by geographic borders or ethnic distinction, but it's bound together under the kingship of Jesus where he sits on the throne and he orders things according to his purpose. The economy of the kingdom of God follows the character of God and Jesus the king. We get a picture of the economy of the kingdom of God in this parable. In the economy of the kingdom of God, lost things get found and God is moved by compassion and grace takes the lead and children are restored and sins are forgiven and communities are brought together and debts are repaid and parties happen. I think we're moved by this parable over and over again because it's a view into the kingdom of God at its best and it's something that we long to see more of in our world, in our earthly kingdoms. So here's what I need for us to ponder this morning. How are we being confronted with the economy of the kingdom of God in this unique time? I'm not an expert. I know things are changing every hour, but here's what I think. The younger son is asking for his inheritance early, and he's essentially saying, Father, I want the benefits that you can offer me, but I don't need your presence, and I don't really want it. Essentially, I want the benefits of your kingdom, but I don't need you as my king. Friends, don't tell me that that doesn't hit home for you right now. In the last week, we have all had to adjust to a new normal, and it's caused us to take note of all that we take for granted, which is a beautiful thing, but let's be honest, it goes deeper than that. We are confronted 
in this time with our dependence on our comforts. We are so accustomed to going where we want to go and eating what we want to eat and and socializing with whoever we want to and setting our agenda, our goals, our schedule, our bank account, our 401k, our routine, our vacations. We are constantly leaning on our autonomy and freedom and self-made destinies. We want the benefits of a loving, benevolent God, but we so often live as if we are not all that interested in his presence. We say, God, give me the good of your economy, and then I'll go off and do my own thing. I want freedom, but I don't want relationship. Friends, this is a pigsty moment for us when we look at all that we've carefully curated in our lives and we say, you know what I've been missing? I've been missing the presence of God. The presence of the Father. I've had this feeling before in my life. When our boys were hitting school age, we decided that it was time for us to try for a third child. We had prayers for a daughter and we ran into a buzzsaw of loss. Three miscarriages in two years. Each of them complicated and confusing and painful in their own way. And in those raw moments when life was so upset, I just remember having to get over whatever platitudes I had been telling myself and realizing how far I had gone astray. We had just assumed that we could plan things out exactly how they should be, even to the point of of trying to get pregnant at a certain time of the year so that the birthday would fall at the right time so that our child would be in the older half of his or her class and that our kids would be the right grade levels apart. And in that last ultrasound room where they couldn't find a heartbeat, that was a pigsty moment for me. I had to repent of my hubris and my pride. I came to myself realizing that I had been seeking to manufacture the blessings of God instead of being in the presence of God, the only one who can truly bless. I'd been seeking the benefits of the king while casting him off and trying to sit on that throne myself. So we cried out. We repented. We got on our knees, turning from our self-made kingdom and back to King Jesus. Listen, I I don't think that God is causing this virus. But I do know that he's at work through it. And what if his work in this is to call us back to the kingdom of God? What if this is a pigsty moment for the church and even the whole world where we come to our senses and we realize that we've been seeking the benefits of God without recognizing his kingship over our lives? What if we admit today that we have been a prodigal church and a prodigal people? We've wandered off with an inheritance that we don't deserve and we've tried to make it on our own and this virus has humbled us and brought us to our knees. What if, what if the church worldwide is being brought to our knees right now so that we can return to God. Not to receive shame and punishment, 
but to receive grace and love and the robe of restoration. Our pigsty moment as a family led us to being restored unto God as a family in his time and in his way through the blessings of adoption with a beautiful daughter in a way that I will never again question the goodness of God. We felt so very pursued by God. Now we as a church, we've been, we've been praying for renewal for months. Maybe this is the answer to our prayers. Maybe it's a time for the church to come home to the Father, the King. And you want to know the best news? He's been looking for us. He is hiking up his robe right now for his church, bearing his ankles, running after us to embrace us and restore us. And what comes after the restoration? The party comes after the restoration. We're going to talk about that next week, so hang in for that. But let's end today by recognizing how prodigal we are. Timothy Keller wrote a a brilliant little book on this parable. He begins by defining prodigal as recklessly extravagant or having spent everything. Can we confess this morning how prodigal we are? But then Keller turns the definition around and he calls his book The Prodigal God. Because how else can we define God the Father other than recklessly extravagant and having spent everything for us? We can wander and we can squander and we can forget our Father in the most prodigal way possible, but it does not compare to how prodigal God is towards us with reckless grace and love and restoration and compassion and care. Thanks be to God for his unending love. And may we return to him today and re-enter the kingdom of God right now and place our hope in the kingdom to come. Let's pray. Lord, we are, a prodigal God, we are a prodigal people and a prodigal church. We recognize the ways that we stray so, so often from you. Seeking the benefits that you give to us, but shunning your presence in our lives. Would you use this time to bring us back to you? Allow us to come to ourselves in repentance for our pride and our hubris and our tendency to go our own way. Lord, we thank you that even as we begin to rehearse our lines to you, Lord, that you are running out to meet us and greet us and shower us with affection and restore us and begin the party. Lord, I have this vision of your church in this season walking down the road and you running towards your church. You're running towards your bride. Lord, may you infect us with the economy of your kingdom where the lost are found and the sick are healed 
and those who are far from you are restored. Begin with us, Lord. And may your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven.